rolling out the courthouse. Friday night, X got the kids, and that's all right. Corner store, a sixer, tequila and a lime, gonna kick my feet up. Keys on the twine. to uh, Keys Antoine. I am your host, Pope Calhoun, joined as always by the noble, the esteemed, the good captain. Thank you so much for the introduction. And we have on the other end of the horn here, a man who needs no introduction. We got Brendan B. Brown of the famed band Wheatus, multi-platinum selling artist. (laughs) Hi, guys. (laughs) Thanks for lending your celebrity to our (laughs) tiny, tiny podcast. Is that what they're calling it these days? Yeah. Well, I, I enjoy podcasts uh, of all sizes and shapes. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's also very nice to have an interruption and I can I can tend to work in the studio and like forget to pee and forget to eat. <laughs> and like then, you know, suddenly I'm like, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel strange? Uh, spe- you know, yeah. Speaking of working in the studio, I understand that you guys are working on the remaster of your 2000 album Weedus right now. How is the how is the re-recording going? Uh, it's going very well. Um, we, uh, you know, we're not um, the version that we're putting out in 2020 is not a remaster. It's a complete re-record, meaning that every single track is being replaced. Uh, we're doing the album over again from scratch. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was I was uh, I was I heard about that and I started looking into it and I heard you guys were running into like some serious trouble trying to found find the um, the phone. Uh, I think it was dial tone in um, Teenage Dirtbag and you guys had to re-record it um, on your your um, uh, synth. Like you had to track down the exact instrument you guys used. Yeah. Well. So this is a really strange story. Um, I have uh, pretty good records of what we did. And when um, I still have all the gear from back in those days, but uh, that one keyboard part that you hear right after in the first verse, I sing the word she, the, the line she rings my bell, and it goes blap blap blap. That little mm-hmm. sort of plinkety sound. Um, it appears again later in the song in the third verse. We call the girl verse uh, while she's singing and. Then well, it's me, but you know what I mean. And um, and then it happens again in the chorus. Is you can get on the on the recorded version that you would hear on the radio or Spotify. You can't really hear the one in the chorus, but it's there. And when it's not there, you notice, you know. So we um we couldn't that one piece of audio, that little sort of three note phrase, was recorded at somebody else's studio. Like okay. early on in the sort of like prototyping of the song. So you're calling dudes up and saying, hey, I know in 1999 we recorded this thing. Do you happen to have it 20 years later? Well, so the 
the the per, the guy who mixed it is no longer alive. Sadly, a guy named John A. Osa, um, who mixed it that day, uh, the day those keyboards were laid in there, as a sort of flourish uh, that we were trying to add during the mix. Um, he's passed away, so he's not. I can't get a hold of anybody who has his gear or any of that stuff and not to sure. mention that would be a really hard thing to like do you remember in 1999 for 45 <laughs> minutes you know uh actually it wasn't 99 it was more like 98 97 maybe even so um we're talking a very early version of the song that uh was only ever used um on uh it's like a it's like a Napster version, you know, it's like a LimeWire like early mix that got out. Are you talking about the uh, probably the file that killed our family computer back in the year two thousand? Could have been. It could have been. It could have been early <laughs> malware. We just um, anyway. The, the, the short story is is that there was no way to verify what was used back then. It was the only time we did anything outside of my own studio and my own gear. Oh wow! And it, to top it all off, it's this super peculiar sound that we. I mean, when I tell you that we researched keyboard sounds, I mean we le we left no stone unturned. Like it was insane. All right. I mean, plus you got the inter internet now, so you can like try and um, you know r reach out to the fan base. Try Not even and, the fan yeah. base. I was reaching out to other engineers and uh, keyboard people and DJs and a guy, a synth uh, guy who runs a blog about vintage synthesizers. Nobody could find it. And then our keyboard player Brandon was like, "You know, that sounds like a phone, an old touch tone phone dial." Like I used to play Marilyn Manson on my mom's phone when I was a kid. Like because you did it, did it, did it, did it. You could like, you know. So um, I was like, "Dude, if you think you know what it is, go ahead, build build a sample out of it, and we'll use, you know, because we'll, we have an ESX uh, twenty four sampler in in main stage, and we built okay. a keyboard with these. He 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 created dual tone uh frequency samples with so d, oh, d wow, is, wow. yeah dual tone uh multi-frequency that the acronym uh dtmf is what the bell telephone system used starting in the, like i think the early 60s 1960s they implemented this technology where basically it's really kind of neat it's like the phones on the phone lines are all singing each other little individual like unique songs right so like when you pick up your phone you have your phone number that you're connected to and then you dial in somebody else's phone number which is has a unique little song that it sings and write down the lines electronically not digitally by the way they find each other um i had no idea that's how it worked that is how it works yeah, I have, I have I had no idea that was what really what was going on there. I uh, I figured so this is after the old timey switchboard operator days. Yeah, well after that. Yeah, uh, this is this is po this is the next step after rotary dial. So you, if you remember, like you used to have to put okay. put your finger in the hole and spin it around, and like it would click back a certain number of times, which is basically a version of like Morse code, like because it has to mm -hmm. click back that number of times each time it sends the signal, and then a connection is made. This was like faster. This was like the dual tone system was like supposed to be like breakthrough speedy technology, you know? So it's like close, close encounters, encounters of the third, third kind. kind. 
it's sort of like that. Yeah, not unlike that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that made it all the more endearing because it's, if I'm being perfectly honest with you, I had no uh, concept of that metaphor in the song until Brandon pointed it out. He's like, you know, this is really cute. This is like phones like used to dial each other's number and like talk to each other like, are you out there, my soulmate? Like with this special code, you know? <laughs> and and oh, so it's like an added layer to teenage dirtbag that was never intended. It is a little bit, a little bit like that, yeah. Like like um. So anyway, putting that sound together was a royal pain in the ass, and we finally got it right. And Brandon is in the process of building a keyboard that accommodates um. That where every key has a a, a phone number now the problem is is because because it's dual tone and some of them then you you know how i don't know if you play music but when you play in a major scale if you want to switch it to a minor you have to diminish or add a note that's not there typically well with dual tone you can't do that so it's like you have to build like a unique set of minor keys that happen and it's very challenging it's a tremendous amount of work it's like very it's like it's like kind of like a beautiful mind like stuff like <laughs> it's an expansive amount of work uh uh that's sort of um uh, exponentially more complicated the bigger you make it we got it right so what you're saying is three notes that we needed he he won the keyboard battle but the keyboard telephone war if he ever wants to keyboard solo with the telephone notes we still got a little bit of a deep fight left there you know that's the the greatest of all time keyboard is the one where somebody gets this right because it's so fucking cool. It's like it's a <laughs> level of like technology and music that is I find so interesting and fascinating. And you know, uh, uh, we we were able to bring the song back to life because somehow this Bell Telephone invented this this like common technology. It's I, th I actually do believe it's um, probably public domain right now like the technology itself and then if you want to go down a really weird rabbit hole there's an article in wired about a hacker kid from boston who he was blind and he had like really really good hearing and he was able to discern the the secret codes that are available that are not on your dial tone pad so like the phone okay. company has has their own special set of notes that are like that will do crazy things and he was like hacking bank accounts by whistling these special notes into the how long ago was this <laughs> when did they catch wind of was that julian assange <laughs> this kid was amazing this kid was in the 70s uh hold on let me see if i can wired phone phone freak that's what they're called freakers uh phone freaks p-h-r-e-a-k-s um Oh sweet! This, this is like uh, they're hacking the planet over here. Pretty much like the earliest black hat, you know, kind of guys um, were were doing it on the phone lines, like like analog phone line stuff. And that's just, I mean, you know, 
<laughs> I think Disney Channel made an original movie about that called Punks, I believe. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, 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 the pseudo documentary Punks is like P U N K Z, I believe. Yeah, yeah. It had a pretty good, uh, pretty good intro there. <laughs> uh, either way, phone notes aside, so it sounds like you've got all the other uh, the other gear you guys used to make the the original Weedus um, release there. So you've still got the original guitars, amps, basses, drum kit, all that good stuff. No, I heard he got rid of he. You sold the snare, the original snare, right? I sold the original snare, which was an IOT fourteen-inch IOT uh, uh, sugar maple, uh, like unfinished, you know, uh, wood with wood hoops. And I was able to find two of them online. Um, and believe it or not, the one that was the exact spec of the one that we used didn't sound as good as the other one. So we wound up using another IOT snare. Um, Huh. Which was really, which really kind of like, I don't know, kind of was maybe we got lucky and we got like an even better one, sort of. Um, or, you know, maybe the the skin stretches out over time or something. I'm not a drummer by any means, but it's got to be something to do with that. Like the humidity it's stored in or. Sure. Um, and also like, you know, wood dries out over time. So in the 90s when it was made, it may have had sort of tonal characteristics that it lost over the years, you know. Um, okay. That does happen, but um, but we got the 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 really cool cool snare that we use for it is an IOT thirteen inch, um, which is a little deeper, same exact era, like it was made during the nineties. Uh, it was a wood hoop, same sort of like bare maple shell, um, and uh, you know people have complained about that snare drum sound over the years. And uh, it's funny, it's like we you know we worked hard to kind of eliminate the part of that snare sound that people were sad about, but keep the whatever about it held the mix together because as soon as you change that snare drum sound, the song falls apart, you know? So <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Here here I found the I found the hacker article. Um oh oh yes. Yes. Yeah. FBR FBI charges uh blind phone freak with intimidating a, a Verizon security official. <laughs> this is crazy. This- this literally sounds like the opening scene of that movie Hackers from the 990s. Yeah. Like he gets like he gets he gets arrested for like hacking into some government organization as a young teenager. He serves his term in like juvie and then he's let out and uh, the sequel to that is The Matrix, right? With Keanu. Yeah, that's right. it's a, it's a it's a soul soul sequel. Yeah, I think yeah, that's pretty much it's the prequel. It's like Matrix yeah. Revelations or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Rumor has it the Wachowskis saw uh, yeah, hackers and then they they uh, saw right through the simulation we're all living in. While while we're on this uh, while we're on this call right now, I'm going to see if I can send you this link because this is so fascinating. Um, yeah, we'll it's hard check to it even out. sort yeah. of cons- yeah. Yeah, it's it's difficult to conceive that this was a thing. Like, like, wait a minute, what people used to whistle down the phone line and hack like into like accounts over like analog lines? What? Like, you know, yeah, via frequency. Uh, and I, the crazy thing, I'm kind of of that era, so um, you know, you'd think that I would understand it, but it still kind of blew me away. Um, where's the? I feel like I go to a bank thing? now. They want they want two forms of ID. They want to see the debit card, and they say, "Do you have the account number?" It's like, no, I don't have my account number tattooed on my hand right now. Thank you. I would hope my two forms of ID and a debit card are good enough. But turns out, back in the day, you had a good enough phone whistle, you'd be hacking everything. Okay, I okay, got no, one up now. The solid question is like, would this would it still work? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I wonder how much more intricate they had to make like the the mating call, if you will. <laughs> yeah, 
exactly. <laughs> um, so there's a yeah, I sent it to you. There you go. East Boston based phone hacker arrested. So while Pope's this pulling that up, oh, you mind if I ask you another question? Yeah, sure. So um, I think the most iconic we'll say display of teenage dirtbag i think and how it got really presented to a lot of the masses who didn't hear it when it originally came out was when generation kill um you know was the hbo miniseries and you got uh you got the young corporal you got the ice man you got the rolling stone reporter and they're in the humvee in the middle of baghdad you know rolling down the, the highway and uh i think it's a young corporal corporal persons i want to say his name is he starts singing teenage dirtbag and i know so many people said what song is that like i need to figure out what song this is they go google it and then boom they're introduced to weedus how did hbo contact you and say hey we want we want the rights to this song um well yeah so that that's way up at the top of the list of like usages of the song that i'm very very proud of um but uh, the, the way it works is typically my publishing company sends me an email. That particular time, I didn't have HBO. I was kind of broke during that year, and I didn't have like basic cable or anything like that. So um, I must confess that I didn't know exactly what, what Generation Kill was. I did really? read the synopsis and really dig it. Uh, so, um, you know, I, uh, I was stoked that they used it that way and i just have to uh okay it you know i just have to send uh, a message that says yes i approve you know um okay yeah and uh you know at the time i mean this is like post the surge and all that nonsense mm-hmm. and um you know we're we got to admit man like americans we're pretty excited about the idea of like where we're going to go to war and then the guys who actually wind up fucking doing it we forget about them really quick like we're we're on to some other thing and i was glad that there was like a almost like just barely post contemporary like almost concurrent story of what was going on over there albeit perhaps fictionalized but um you know, so that we, so that at least some people would have it in their face, you know, what we voted for, you know? Sure. Cause I mean, you know, you, you had the book obviously in the book, I remember when it first came out, um, you know, I was still in high school back then and, you know, people were passing it around and people were going, I think like borders. So we didn't even have Amazon going and buying copies of it. And then, um, you know, when they made the TV show, it brought it back into the light, you know, all that stuff to have, to have the conversation yet again, for those, you know, who might not have read the book. So, um, it's, it's, it's pretty special. I think that your music made it in there cause it's a fantastic song. And I think that the fact that those guys all in that Humvee are identifying with the lyrics in the sense that they're not much older than that teenage dirtbag in the song. It's, it's pretty poignant, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's not much else to say except that like, it's sort of a proud moment and you know, I, uh, I, we've been lucky that way. Like they used it in bully as well. The documentary about bullying, um, yeah, they did an acoustic version, right? Yeah, well, it was like a, I think it was this Scala choir, boys choir of uh, Belgium, I want to say. I'm not 100% certain of that, but um, yeah, it was, uh, it's, uh, uh, that's a beautiful version as well. It's kind of like pretty, pretty poignant. Um, but we, again, we've been lucky to have them, to have like usages, you know, a lot like, w- 
when you're when you're a bigger band and you have a bigger song than Teenage Dirtbag, you're probably getting pitched a lot of money to do like um you know, be a part of this the uh, you know, hedge fund commercial <laughs> like like uh, Levi you know, jeans. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, this health insurance company, this you know, this this pharmaceutical company wants to do this thing, you know, you know, I mean, I've never I've been, you know, over the years like being a musician, even if you own your publishing as I do, you're not you're not a rich person. You know, it's not like that anymore. So you you do have these hard times. I remember 2009, 2010 were were really rough and like you know, I never had to face the question like if uh you know, if Pfizer wanted to give you $100,000 to put Teenage Dirtbag in the new, like, Viagra shit you, that they're rolling out, you know, like, what, <laughs> you know, what, what, would, what would you do? Like, what do you do? Like, you know, like, I don't know, man. Like, do I want to be associated with that as a, as a songwriter? Well, Cialis? I feel like Cialis is like a much, you know, more probably... We'll say teenager-friendly erectile dysfunction <laughs> drug. So I think you could probably cut it for Cialis. But yeah. Viagra, let's hang that Pfizer head up yeah, for the time being. Yeah, nowadays you could just, yeah, like Blue Chew. Yeah, oh, there's, yeah. There's yeah, some more, you know, something kind of fun. Forhims.com. Speaking forhims.com. Exactly. Well, speaking of other uses of your work in popular culture, you had a song on the first album called Punk Ass Bitch that was from my understanding, purchased and then um, re-recorded to be the closing credit song of the Jackie Chan Adventures on Cartoon Network. So, so oddly, uh, that's one of only, <laughs> that's one of only two songs on the first album that I had no part in writing. Uh, okay, I didn't write uh, the cover that we did. Obviously, the Erasure song. I didn't write that one, but I played on that one. That was uh, our live version that I had been doing since I was like a teenager. And then the other song is the one you mentioned was written, recorded, produced, engineered by our bass player at the time, um, Rich Legey. And as part of a sort of like, I wrote all the songs for this record, but it, you'll feel better about it if you write a song for the record and I have nothing to do with it. It was kind of like a trade-off. It was like, you know, please play the bass line on Teenage Dirtbag the way that I would prefer and not the way that you would prefer in exchange do a song on the record that i you know you it, i'll do anything you want me to do and it turned out what he wanted me to do was leave the room so i did <laughs> and, and the result i don't play guitar i don't sing i don't do anything on that song it's a hundred percent uh rich uh, engineering and writing and performing. That's interesting because you hear about like creative differences in bands all the time, but that's an interesting approach to like avoid, avoid conflict, just like giving someone full creative control over different tracks. Yeah, I mean, Weedus has always oh, kind of been my my solo project, you know, since a since like late '94, early '95, I've been writing songs for a band that I would sing in, you know, and I over the years. You know, I understand that everybody has a creative impulse and that people want to believe in something that they were a part of and so on and so forth. I understand how powerful that is. And I've always kind of said to everybody, look, I, I write records, but if you want to write something for the record, go ahead and do it. The only rule is you have to tell me what to do. Like, I'll, if, you, if your song, if your vision requires that I stand on my head and play the kazoo, 
that's what I'll do for <laughs> you, you know? <laughs> I, I was just going to say, so we know that Jackie Chan himself, he wants creative control. He wants to perform his own stunts. He wants to punch <laughs> up his lines. So I, it's, I'm glad to hear that Jackie Chan wasn't like, all right, listen up, Weedus. So... I got this punk-ass punk bitch <laughs> trying to cut a sick closing for my adventures, the cartoon. I'm glad that Jackie Chan I'll let your, your bassist have his way with the song, certainly. But, uh, I mean, that's that's on your Wikipedia page. I mean, that's... <laughs> <just saying. laughs> yeah, I like Jackie, you know? I mean, I wasn't... I didn't have anything to do with that either because as a result of having not written it, I had no say in what was done with it. So I had no part in, in the Jackie Chan version. Um, we, we, I was actually kind of glad that that had happened because I thought it was a much cooler, you know, thing to, that could happen with the song than had happened already. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, it's like, it wasn't my tune to begin with and the, the Jackie Chan thing was nothing to do with me either. But we do play it live that way. If we get enough requests, we play the Jackie Chan version. So you're saying the next time we're at the Weeda show, if me and Pope just start yelling at the top of our lungs, Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan. I've seen a live video. I've seen a live video on YouTube. You literally go, that guy's yelling, punk ass bitch. That was co-opted for uh, Jackie Chan Adventures. We're going to play that. And you played it live. It was awesome. Yeah, we, we, that's the thing. We've done that many times. I can't even count how many times we've done that, but, um, you know, it isn't always the case that they that's that they want to hear that. You know, so um, here I'm sending you guys another another thing uh, uh, from Rolling Stone, which is this thing that happened in my hometown. Inevitably, I get the question, "What is a teenage dirtbag?" And the only like sort of period correct usage of it, vernacular style from when I was a kid, uh, was appears in print in the November uh, 22nd or 23rd edition of Rolling Stone from 1984 uh, because there was a satanic uh, ritual homicide in my town where I grew up. And uh, this, was, this, is, this will explain a bit about what the song, uh, what the context was of that word, where I came from. Uh, my hometown. So was that part of the whole uh, satanic panic, you think, that of the early 90s that kind of spawned that? Was it that one of the... Uh... Yeah, it was a sort of like the prototype of that, kind of, so to speak. Okay. Um, this happened in the summer of 1984, July 19... or June 1984. Um, and, uh, yeah, kind of was like... It, it was weird to have all these parents and teachers and priests and stuff like freaking out about what kids were doing all of a sudden but mm-hmm. kids were already kind of like what like aware of this culture and oh yeah i mean every generation's got their counterculture right i mean all the way back to the beatniks and beyond right yeah i can't this was this was really this wasn't counter this was like chaos culture i'll, I'll say that <laughs> okay um, <laughs> You know, the place I grew up was at the time, it isn't anymore at all, but at the time was extremely violent. Um, There's like lots and lots. I was in more fist fights by the time I was nine than I could really count, you know? So like, it was, 
It was like that. It was like a lot of fighting, a lot of kids carrying knives. You know, I saw plenty of guns shown to me by kids whose parents had them and also like, you know, knew who the parents were who were wearing one on their hip kind of thing. And this was like in New York. That was, you know, I could see that being a thing out in like farm country where you, you know, you're you're hunting is a way of life and you and it's sure you know part of the ecology but in new york if you're wearing a 357 on your hip you're not hunting deer you know yeah it's <laughs> right. not because yeah. you're worried about the coyote coming to take down your uh your, your new fawn that the, the sheep just had going. yeah i look at the rabid raccoons man like that's this is, you know. <laughs> well that provides a lot more context to the line uh he brings a gun to school because i noticed they censor that now in the uh on the official music video yeah it was sent it was censored back then it was it wasn't done after the fact it was censored prior to release um the mm-hmm. record label wanted me to sing it differently. They wanted me to change the lyric and re-sing it, and I refused to do that, so they censored it. And it was all because we handed in uh, the record on the uh, first year anniversary of the Columbine Massacre, like that week. Yeah, and that's a, obviously a very heavy time to be, yeah. Yeah, it was dark. It was on the news a lot, and there was like a lot of m- memorials. And, uh, you know, at the time, and it's hard to remember, but at the time, that was as shocking as september 11th that was like what these kids plan this like for how long like what you know so uh, a lot of i think it blew blew a lot of people away and 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 that they were that i was singing that was like shocking at the time in a way that was unique to the time you know um i can definitely understand that i mean it's just like when, when you think about where America was in 1997 versus where America, I think that's when Columbine was, 1997, I believe, or versus... 99. Or 99, where, where America was in 1999 to, compared to where we are in 2019. Um, it's two different worlds, you know, when it comes to that kind of stuff, because now it's, it seems like, you know, weekly on the news, there's some awful thing going on in some school this somewhere. There was one literally. Yeah. I always think about that, like, you know, the passage of time is very difficult to comprehend. When I was a kid, it blew my mind that, like, like Elvis was at the top of the charts in, like, 1962, and Led Zeppelin was at the top of the charts in 1972, right? I, I right, mean, yeah. that, that's wild. And then who were you? 1982, we're probably looking at, like, Motley Crue, or... Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yes. So, so yeah, a similar analogy. Um, uh, nineteen eighty was uh, "Back in Black" by ACDC. ACDC. Okay. ACDC. Yeah. Okay. It was like one of the biggest selling albums of the year in nineteen eighty, and in nineteen ninety one, eleven years later, was "Nevermind" by Nirvana. Oh wow! Yeah. So just move, moving from Elvis to cl- what we would consider classic rock to what we consider still classic rock. Well, I don't know. I guess ACDC probably more like hard rock, I guess, in the 80s. And then now you got the grunge coming in the 90s. I mean, it's like every 10 years, that culture of what we'll is called rock music completely changes in America. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, for, for my money, in the last 10 years... Or last 20 years, I think the most important developments in American music have been in hip hop. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, American rock music is kind of like, has been anemic for a while, I think. The White Stripes kind of like, kind of like 
put put an exclamation point on it and then kind of put it to bed for a while. Okay. Would you ever do a collaboration with Jack White? <laughs> oh, yeah, man. I would do whatever Jack White told me to do. <laughs> so maybe we try to make this call like next week. We get Jack White on the horn and then yeah, we just head down to Third Man Records. BBB. Just, just make this happen. Jack White. That'd be fantastic. There you go. You know, I don't know why you haven't already, guys. Come on. <laughs> I did see his, um, we'll say, former Chateau de White down in Detroit is for sale right now for, it's like, under 500,000. So I think we get five of our closest friends together, take out a joint five person mortgage and then boom, we're living the white stripes lifestyle. Detroit is known for subprime mortgages. (laughs) Detroit loves a good subprime mortgage. Come on, Quicken Loans, let's get in there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, You mentioned earlier, like you're you're, uh, getting started writing Weta songs in around 1995. Um, From my understanding, that's when you first kind of went on a tour and um, you weren't with Wheatus at the time, or you hadn't created Wheatus at the time, but you were opening for Joan Jett? What was that like? Uh, I was in a band at the time called Hope Factory. This is uh, probably late 95, early 96. And um, I was uh, on the road on the East Coast, kind of in a van with the guys in my band, doing opening slots for Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. And it was like, like you know, otherworldly. Like, I had no idea how to process what was going on. I thought I was like, oh, my God. Like, and, it, you know, to be honest, I was so at 19, 20 years old, I was so unready for it. Um, actually, I was no, I shouldn't say that. I was 22. I was 22 when I was doing that. But I was still like really, truly unready, you know, um, and like not not capable of processing what kind of a life that was or like what what it meant what kind of a responsibility it was to have be on stage in front of people and all all the heavy stuff that you really work on as you as you progress i had yet to understand so it was like and they were really nice to me and to us into my little band at the time it wasn't my band it was it was somebody else's band it was a guy named ali namvar who was a singer songwriter he's a genius he still writes music he's still doing it but um he uh he he i learned a lot from him and from that experience that uh, that i was able to utilize later on um you know it was like it was an icy cold bath and i was as green as they come but it was a very positive learning curve oh i bet man uh joan jett was actually my second concert i ever went to and i couldn't prepare to process the face melting that was cherry bomb i can't even imagine like as a musician or like an aspiring musician or you know trying to you know plant your your roots in the industry and then just like opening up for her that must have been just like all-time life high no honestly what are some some stories from the road from that tour you got any you feel comfortable with sharon uh well i i talked to her about how she hates rush (laughs) (laughs) no she hates rush kitty lee this is joan told me story she said that rush one time when she was um, in the Runaways, Rush were side stage at some event, like laughing at them while they were playing, and she was like had a had a bone to pick with progressive rock because of that. I'm pretty sure, you know. Um, and uh, you know, maybe Rush were laughing at, okay. at it, uh, the girls, cool. and that was dumb, you know, like um, as if they never did anything wrong with those fucking silky white robes that they wore in the 70s. But, <laughs> but, uh, but the, um, you know, I mean, 
uh, yeah, she told me that story. Uh, it's like it was a bit of a bummer. I was because I was really into Rush, and, she, and I was like, oh, she, we were talking about like what kind of music are you into, what influenced you. And she would always say like Fugazi, like was her big influence. And at okay. the time, okay. yeah, at the okay. time I had like been in and out of Fugazi, and then I was like, I was going through phases, you know, like when you're like from the ages of eighteen to twenty-two, your music tastes are like ba boom, like they just they're all over the place. So, you know, I was in sure. a hardcore band. Uh, first gig I ever played at CBGBs, I was nineteen years old, and it was I was like ninety-three, I think, or ninety-two. And, um, uh, you know, I had like been in a f serious Fugazi Soundgarden Pixies kind of like Dinosaur Jr. phase, um, Sonic Youth and, and all that. And I had come out of it a little bit at the time I was into, um, a little bit more like the Brit pop scene, like, um, okay. Blur and, uh, My Bloody Valentine and um that kind of stuff the cure um still into the cure always happening but um anyway so the point being that like when i'm having a sad day i just like to put the cure on yeah yeah um yeah that's a that's a solid you there's not there's no bad there's no bad circumstance under which you should play the cure you know like this think about it like where does where doesn't <laughs> friday i'm in love fit tuesday no, Tuesday's in the song, man. Oh shit! No, that yeah, that is part of the song. Damn it! All right, I thought I was gonna. That would be a good one. Okay, let's just go back to Rush. Be a dicks for a second. No, I was just, that makes me upset because I love Rush so much. So also, the fact that you know, they're not very cool to Joan Jett, who is also awesome, makes yeah. me very I've sad. I've seen Rush twenty-eight times. Like it didn't. It wow. didn't change the. It, it didn't change the way I felt about them. It just kind of made me feel like, <laughs> oh man, that sucks. Like, like I wish I didn't hear that story. You know. Um, but, right. uh, but you know, um, like still a Rush fan, still a Joan Jett fan, you know, like whatever, like I'm fine with it. I love the song that she did with Michael J. Fox, Light of Day. You ever heard that? No, I didn't even know he sang. Yeah, this is like some deep background. You um, gotta he, go he check out. He sings as, uh, Johnny B. Good, I believe. When he's doing Johnny B. Good, like in, uh, I'm in Back sure to the Future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because then Marvin, Marvin Berry, you know, Marvin Berry got the phone call, you know, pretty much. They're saying Michael J. Fox invented Johnny B. Good. Yeah. <laughs> the worst implication in that movie. That's a little, that's a little problematic. Um, but, <laughs> no, but it's, like, it's, it's like a time loop. Like, no, no, no. In the universe that Michael J. Fox came from, he got it from Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry didn't get it from him. Like, Chuck Berry is the chicken, not the egg, you know? That's true. I guess you got to get into the... Uh, the meta chicken. Yeah. No, no, no. There's the, an answer to what came first, the chicken or the egg. I don't okay. get why anybody asks okay. about this stupid shit. Enlighten us. The chicken has to come first. Because if there's no chicken, then the egg will die. Duh. That's true. <laughs> Unless you're like an amoeba chicken of sorts, right? Right. Or velociraptor. A velociraptor is the chicken. <laughs> Velocity chicken. It's also like yeah, this, yeah. if you have emergent velocity chicken, right? That just kind of like like natural selection turns a, a reptile into a chicken eventually. Um, sure. Then it's you know it's just laying eggs and stuff. I don't get why people ask that question. It annoys me. Sorry, I'm off on a tangent. Uh, do th uh, this podcast is all about tangents. Run with it. 
I think as we get to where Jurassic World 2 or something now, like they got the Parks and Rec guy, he's hopping in there. Eventually, they're going to have to make it where the raptors are all just chickens, and the chickens are just shredding people to pieces, like aggressive chickens. Jurassic you Park 17. How old are you guys? How old are you guys at this point? I'm 25. I'm My 29. Right. So you guys are of the generation that actually might like Jurassic Park. Oh, yeah. The first one that came out in 1990 or whatever it was, that was amazing. And, the, and then the second one, they took a real gamble on Vince Vaughn. <laughs> Steven Spielberg took the gamble on Vince Vaughn. If, if I could show my age for a second, I was like, when, when Jurassic Park came out, I was fastly approaching 20. You know, I was like okay. bearing down on being 20 years old. And uh, I was um, a Spielberg fan because Spielberg did Jaws. Yeah, when he was my age, he directed Jaws. <laughs> I know, dude. And look, I mean, you've watched Jaws, right? I presume? Of course, yeah. Okay. It still holds up somehow. I don't know how. Like, the mechanical fake shark from the 70s still makes sense. I on think it's, it's just a terrifying notion. Gore, or, you know, like, there's, like, it's gory, maybe? I don't know. Whatever. I mean, you got John Williams in there, like, you know, yeah, uh, well toying shot. with your emotions. Yeah. It's well shot. Yeah. yeah. And they're straight to the plot. They're str straight to the plot. I mean, it opens with the shark attack. Yeah, there's a giant shark who's going to kill everyone in its path. I know. It does Period. what it says on the box. Like, it's a shark movie. <laughs> People die, you know, like, and, you know, Jurassic Park, like, they don't show you any dinosaurs for, like, uh, like you know, feels like a million years you know like you don't get to it doesn't it doesn't start off like that and i remember yeah, thinking yeah, you got it you got newman you got uh samuel <laughs> jackson you got um yeah, the old dude you got the kid who's getting gutted by the british guy you got the paleontologist botanist thing yeah you know i didn't mean to cut you off there sorry yeah no it's a ton there's a ton of setup like you know <laughs> and i remember when i saw i saw jurassic park in a theater and i was like that's it. Spielberg's over. This is bullshit. This is so stupid. This is a kid's movie. Fuck this. And Interesting. That, that, that was real for me, you know, at the time. Like, you know, Indiana Jones, people were dying, getting shot up, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, some, something about, uh, you know, Spielberg, like, he softened on that one. Like, he kind of got, like, okay, I'm going to make, like, this is going to be kids. E.T., was supposed to be his kids movie back in 1983 I think ET came out that shit's scary like that's not that's not an easy movie to watch for a 6 year old or a 7 year old ET is kind of like whoa like have you seen that recently uh not in a while but i mean you know the government coming after anybody is is yeah definitely scary and then the reese's pieces too yeah <laughs> i mean you got those reese's pieces and like he's just trying to feed this this alien reese's pieces and i'm thinking as a kid i'm like well that's gonna screw with that guy's digestive yeah, tract he's, he's not used to reese's yeah, not allergies, allergies were on the rise, rise. No, he got his finger cut, cut open, open. <laughs> he yeah, needs stitches. yeah come on yeah. like he needs to go to the hospital uh, if i had to speculate why jaw or uh Jurassic Park rather has such a slow start. It's I'm sure he was just trying to explain to audiences how uh, dinosaurs could ever be resurrected, and I, I agree. I think he took it way too long just to uh, like make the audience gullible enough to buy that premise. Yeah, well, for me, so I guess I had the expectation, <laughs> like like the expectation of Jaws. Like this was the first monster movie he made since Jaws. 
I mean, he with Jaws, he kind of created the summer blockbuster. I think that movie was shot for like three hundred thousand dollars, and it ended up grossing like two hundred fifty million. Wow, I did yes. not know those stats. Yeah. yeah, it was like a it was like a national like uh, uh, I don't know I don't know how to describe it, but it, there was just like such fervor in like the movie going audiences that had never been seen before, and then I think it was only uh, seen again when Star Wars came out, and that back to back punch kind of like you got the big movie the everyone's gonna go see on the said weekend it comes out, and it's fighting for money. Yeah, and yeah, word of mouth. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It was like- Jaws was a phenomenon, and then the next was two years later, 1977, Star Wars was another phenomenon. And uh, oddly, or not so oddly, there was it was like the baby boomer directors had finally taken over Hollywood kind of thing, you know. Um, Which is crazy, because if you go back to it, I think they all graduated from, I want to say USC in the same class. You've got like Brian De Palma, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and maybe Coppola, I think. And they were like all in the same class together, which is just mind boggling. It must have been tough to grade. I mean, so you're the prop, right? Yeah. You're sitting there, and you're, you're the like, professor. Uh, Coppola, it's not bad. <laughs> Lucas, uh, I don't know, it's like a little... Like, maybe could use some plot to drive this. I don't know. You got Spielberg. like, well, it's well shot, He's but like, who's this, a couple who's holes this here. dog man, uh, uh, Lucas? He's like, give me some text. Like, I need to know what the context of this, you know, galactic civil war that's happening. Imagine he's graded on the bell curve, right? He's graded on the bell curve, and, like, Lucas gets a D. He yeah. just gets a yeah. D, and then he's got this chip on his shoulder that carries him through to selling out Star Wars for $6 billion to Disney. Yeah. He's like, like, hey, uh, Spielberg, what was your last $6 billion sale? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're at the golf course. They're teeing it up. They're on, like, the ninth tee box taking bets. Yeah. He's, just, he's just trying to get under Spielberg's skin. I imagine there's, like, some – imagine this is, like, a thing that happens Yeah. regularly. Yeah, man. I mean, that's, like – that. Those two, and then – you know, if you're talking about the three of them, like Coppola, Lucas, and Spielberg, um, they all did, cra- all three of them did crazy, like, what, are you kidding me? Like, epic films, like, right out of the gate kind of epic thing. Epic trilogies, you know? Well, actually, I'm trying to think of epic Spielberg trilogy. Oh, uh, Indiana, Jones. Indiana Jones. Okay, there we go. Yeah, epic trilogies. Um, but uh, Coppola kind of stands alone for doing the craziest one like the one that was like bad for your mental health like you know i am a huge godfather fan i'm a huge godfather fan and allegedly mario puzo who wrote the godfather he he didn't know what he was writing when he wrote it and it came down to um he was like reading a book on like adapting screenplays or like reading a book on how you lay out a novel and in the introduction to this book it said reference mario puzo's the godfather part one like the guy he did such a fantastic job about it he didn't even know how to write a uh, a book much less you know uh a huge you know international um i don't know what would become you know a huge international blockbuster would give you know rise to so many people's careers that he's going to read the book on you know how to write a how to write a novel, how to write a screenplay for fun, and it just referenced Mario Puzo's. <laughs> I think it also, he also ended up coining a lot of terms that were eventually co-opted by the American mafia. Okay. Like, like, like consigneri. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Gamor? Because I, I heard I heard <laughs> Anthony Soprano talk a lot about his Gamor a lot. <laughs> I'm not, no, I don't know, man. I mean, like, that, that's like, was, so this is a New York movie. Um you know, I knew people who talked like that, and it wasn't because they saw the fucking Godfather. You know, <laughs> <laughs> or Reddit, yeah, or Reddit, yeah, Reddit. <laughs> you know, like, um, and and the thing is, is like, 
uh, what I was referencing directly regarding Coppola was um, Apocalypse Now. That oh sure, that's like that film is like I'm surprised anyone survived that. There are stories about Martin Sheen almost dying on the set, and you know. Brando to be was, fair, Martin Sheen did say, "I want a mission for my sins," and they gave me one. So I mean, he was asking. That was like the third line in the movie. He said it. So um, no, it's it's wild. Like he signed up for I don't know. He's just like what, a seven month shoot, and it ended up being like damn near a two year shoot. And he got like malaria in the Philippines or something wild like that. And if Martin Sheen dies, guys, we don't have Charlie Sheen. We don't have Emilio Estevez if Martin Sheen dies. It's true. It's true. We don't get the West Wing. We don't get the West Wing. We don't get when he comes in. We don't get two and a half men. We don't get. So um, wait, did you just reference the movie with Charlie and, and Emilio that they're in together? Um, Are you, uh, Hot Shots or Muddy Ducks Three? No, no, um, the one where they're trash. Men, men at work. Men, men at, at work. work. Oh my God! What a masterpiece. That <laughs> that, that is. A, <laughs> The, the only time the silver screen was graced with the uh, Esteban Sheen brothers. It's a perfect film. It's a perfect film. <laughs> Do you think they have an Estevez Christmas and then the next day they have a Sheen Christmas? Like, Martin goes to both, but, like, Emilio's got, like, his family and Charlie's got his, like, wild family over here. I was going to say, they'd probably go to Charlie's because he was on house arrest for a little while. Yeah, they would have to go to Charlie's. Yeah. I think he has I think, to stay I there. The, I think it would be safe to, like, divvy it up between Christmas and New Year's, so, like, Emilio, Emilio, gets, Emilio gets to host Christmas because it's like this wholesome, like stable, like family thing. And then they whip Charlie out for New Year's and yeah, things happen. Okay. So Martin stays home for Christmas, maybe Thanksgiving. He goes to Emilio's and then he goes, does uh does up NYE with Charlie. I just like to think that Martin, like, He's just taking like a big nap. He's grandpa. He's got. He just ate a bunch of turkey. He's like napping on the couch, and they're like, "Grandpa, grandpa, let's play." And it's like, "No, no, no." It's like I'm thinking about Apocalypse Now when I come up <laughs> out of the river <laughs> and I cut Marlon Brando's head with a machete. Yeah. He doesn't have war flashbacks. He has Apocalypse Now flashbacks. Have you guys seen a, uh, the, the the horrific um, Isle of Doctor Moreau that from the I, I have not. I have not either. This is a real bad movie. Like, no, no redeeming anything. Um, it's a bizarre. It costs a lot of money. Uh, Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer are in it. Um, whoa, whoa! Those are two of my favorite dudes. I never know if they were in a movie together. Yeah, unfortunately, that <laughs> did. It unfortunately. Did is this post Top Gun? So like, like Val's like starting to get like. Or is it post? Uh, is it post Tombstone? No, I don't think it's post Tombstone. No. Okay, so we're we still got Skinny Val. We got Skinny Val, like he's pretty jacked, and he's hanging out with Brando. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Okay, I might. Be I was kind of hoping what, it was what like. What year did Tombstone come out? Uh, I can look that up. I, I got something. IMDb right here. Tombstone. I'm your Huckleberry. Uh, Ninety-three. Yeah. Okay. So it might have been around the same time. Maybe. Maybe the Isle of Doctor Moreau was a little earlier. It, it was like an early 90s film, I'm pretty sure. But um, it's terrible. Like, you might not, we might want to read a lot about it before you watch it. Because watching it then becomes this sort of exercise in self-abuse. So, you know, I don't know if you want to go through that. But, but the, I but love the, bad uh, movies. But Tombstone is one of those movies that I, I watch scenes from 
every once in a while okay. on YouTube. There's only a handful of movies that I. It's like I need to see that skin that smoke wagon line right now. Like, <laughs> if I don't watch that scene right now, I'm gonna die, and I'll watch it. You know, because um, Tombstone, I think like it's it's over two hours. I mean, I feel like you're kind of making a commitment when you sit down for that one. Yeah, well, that's like once the whole a year. Movie. You know, yeah. I watch all three of the Back to the Future movies. Okay, have you ever played the uh, the Telltale video game, the Back to the Future series, on there? No. Like Xbox. Xbox. Um, I, I have not played, played it yet. yet. <laughs> well, I, no, I'm, I'm big on Telltale games. I love Telltale, so I just I just thought I'd bring it up. Hey, if you want to check it out, let us know next time. Yeah, exactly. Hey, can you guys talk to this thing that I don't know anything about? <laughs> okay, we'll edit that out. No one needs to know I'm an idiot. It's fine. I mean, you're not an idiot. Oh god. I mean, I still, I still, I think we're, I think we're, I think we're, I think we're recording, recording Skype, this Skype, so, so it should, we should, we should be able to post this. I hope so. I mean, I, speaking of things I mean, I've never done before, of this is the first time, first time I've ever heard. So you would say it's we're not, we're not the worst amateur podcast you've been on? So, yeah. Okay, good. All right, we're good. We're good. So, um, what else did you guys want to ask me? Oh, okay. So, uh, thanks for, thanks for taking point on this inspiration. He's driving this interview right now. Captain's pulling up his list of questions. questions. Okay, I just want to ask, what's your favorite show you've ever played? Uh, We opened for James Brown one time in Belgium. Uh, That's wild. Pretty crazy. Um, The first first and only time that we just played CBGBs, we opened for Joey Ramone. uh, That had to be wild, too. Yeah, I mean, that's CBGB's, CBGB's. That's that's hollowed ground. Um, did you ever see the movie that they ended up making about that that uh, establishment? Oh, the documentary. You mean? No, they made a movie where uh, Alan Rickman of Professor Snape fame plays the owner and proprietor of CBG. Yes, and like you get to you get to see the Ramones and Blondie and everybody coming up, Talking Heads. It's crazy. Yeah. Do they need their potions exam? I don't know if I, I don't know if I could watch something like that. Like like the place was glorified after the fact, sure. But like that was like a that was a, bit, a very fundamentally uncomfortable place to be. Like I remember thinking oh, that so I was going to fall through the floor a little bit and like just dr- dry rotted with years of alcohol, yeah, of alcohol. just dry rotted floor like right down to the basement. And then like I mean, people have talked about the toilets, which are legendary. But more, more than that is, like, the, do- <laughs> the dog, the dog, their dog used to shit and piss on the floor. So it's, like, you, like, bringing your stuff in and, like, you put your amp down and shit. You know, like, it was, like, it was a shithole, you know? <laughs> like, it was yeah, like, like Inten- intentionally. Yeah, it was, well, by neglect. I mean, it was, like, you know, it was, like, a, the Lower East Side was, a, uh, at the time, or the Bowery downtown was, like, a place where, like, you know that hadn't gone on through any gentrification it was like it was dilapidated so you know just going down there was kind of like a little shady and then then you were in this place where there was this weird cult where everybody kind of knew each other but nobody talked (laughs) and like everyone was super grumpy but really like stoked to be there at the same time uh but i don't know i don't know like I don't know if I could watch Alan Rickman try and be Hilly Crystal. Like the guy yelled at me <laughs> once or twice, and I don't think I don't think it's gonna be Snape who like gets that right. I don't know. 
That's funny. Uh, that movie also puts an emphasis on uh, zine culture. Did that uh, play any role in uh, like weedist, like early weedist days, or can you speak to like what that uh, what that was like growing up? Um, uh, and a up a with, bit. Uh, zines? A, a bit. My my culture in in like in the suburbs of New York City was much more mixtape culture. Like for instance, okay, like the original Jerky Boys tape cassette. We were just talking about that. 1987, you know? Okay. Uh, Yeah, like 87 was when I heard the Jerky Boys for the first time. And it was the the uncut, like, audio cassette dupe that went around that people just passed around (laughs) and made copies of because it was somebody's fucking cousin. Just raw, raw jerky. Just raw jerk. Like, like (laughs) hanging out for everyone. Like, all the kids had it, you know? And it was like... The notion that that would become some like television thing and then like uh, like whatever else the hell it's been, it's just kind of weird to me. That's like like what like that stupid like, tape that like like it was right up there with like VHS dubbed pornos that got had passed around. You know, a little <laughs> maybe a little less popular than the pornos. You know what I mean? And like it, <laughs> it was a little easier to, to do your hands anything. on, less coveted. Yeah. Wait, say again. No, I'd just say probably it was probably a little uh, less popular, a little more coveted, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard, you know, that, that, but it was like, as far as like hip hop, like the first LL Cool J I ever heard was on a mixtape. Uh, I remember hearing the Crumb Suckers on a mixtape, um, like Black Flag and like any of the like first wave of like hardcore punk from the early 80s. Um, it was all. You know, Ramones, everything was mixtapes. So zines were a thing for, like, like Dungeons & Dragons guys had zines, you know? Okay. That was, like, that was that weird, that that side of it. And I did a little bit of that, but I never got fully into it because I was always, like, busy playing guitar. So, sure. you know. Um, yeah, it was, there were zines around, sure. Yeah, absolutely. But, but, if, but if you knew who Henry Rollins was, like, you were a mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, if you knew the name Jello Biafra, you okay. Know, okay. <laughs> little, little DK. Yeah, you were you were you you were a mixtape person, you know. Um, sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, um, Brendan, um, when can we uh, expect to see um, uh, the Weedus 2020 release? Do you guys have like a, a date you're you're shooting for? So we're shooting for. Not sure we're going to make it, but we're shooting for August 18th, 2000, because it is 20 years to the day. Okay. We're gonna take a crack at that and see if it can't be done. Um, and yeah, that's the story. That's that's what we're working on. That's and that that album, uh, the the 2020 in in the 20th anniversary in 2020, is gonna have 20 songs on it, not 10, because the first record had 10. The reissue, we I found a bunch of songs like on demo tapes and four tracks and things from over the years. That I that were always like, no, we're not going to use that. That sounds too much like album one. And now it's time to like throw that stuff onto a record. And I'm really excited about that because it's kind of an alternate point of view of what the first album should have been, you know? Um, So, yeah, so 2020, we're going to have 20 songs on the 20th anniversary. That's great. Although I mean I hope I hope you guys keep uh, I mean I've I've loved everything you've released I, I gotta say fourteen is my favorite song. You talk about Leroy a lot too. 
<laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. That's a, that's that's a fun song to play live when we get it right. It's pretty it's pretty sharp. But um, yeah, that's a I wrote that after watching a documentary on um, uh, J D Salinger. There's a really really. Yeah, you're familiar with the uh, American Experience, the series of like PBS documentaries that there are. Yeah, I, I've been I, caught in the rye before. Yeah, well, C- well Catcher in the Rye is 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 the book that he, you know, everyone was drawn to him for that character, the Holden Caulfield character. But the documentary goes into depth about how he dealt with having written this iconic baby boomer era character. Well, I mean, he famous famously like went into hiding. Oh after, yeah, and he became was a, a recluse. Deep cover, like that Snoop Dogg song, I believe. Yeah, he to- he totally did. But I'll tell you what, the 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 shitty thing that he did, and I I'm I'm here to tell you, I don't think he was a very good person. Is he had this like never ending, uh, renewable like uh, young woman role in his world, where he would like find a fucking grad student who, who worshipped Holden Caulfield and he would get into a romantic relationship with her and then, like, she would age out and then he'd get another one who was the same age. Like, he, like, he took advantage of young people, like, with his... And that's with horrible. His, yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think in a sort of me-too way, unless you want to talk about how it's kind of unethical to date somebody who's fucking 60 years younger than you are. You know, like, that's, like... Like, uh, I wouldn't be able to do it myself. And uh, that's all in that documentary, though. It is. And and um, 14 was a, I thought like, man, that guy's penance would be to be reincarnated for a little while as a 14 year old girl who's interested in literature. So he can experience what it's like in a male dominated field where even this like enlightened guy is a totally like, you know, like shady prick right and or this enlightened icon who everyone thinks like invented like the character of their age you know he kind of sucks and it occurred to me that like one of those for one of those women they're going to be the one who's on watch when he dies you know and so oh, yeah. I wanted, I mean, they're, they're, we're dealing with the aftermath, aftermath right right exactly someone's going to have to plan a funeral some young person who was like drawn into this web after the last young person aged out is going to have to deal with this estate and his family and whoever else comes out of the woodwork. And, like, it's fundamentally unfair to put somebody in that position, especially if you know for a fact they're not uh, experienced enough to be that person, right? So it's kind of like you're using people up and you're utilizing your fame and your notoriety, your icon status, to create this, like, renewable resource for yourself, which I think is really shitty. And I was disappointed watching the doc like oh man like you 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 dick (laughs) what the fuck is wrong with you so and and i mean like i i felt the same way watching that r kelly documentary but but back back to you sorry you know though though right i mean in both cases you are utilizing your wealth and privacy and experience to victimize somebody right right and that's isn't that yeah, the crime you, oh yeah you're, you're you're taking advantage of people who yeah you're taking advantage of people who have potentially no other means or 
no other I glorify you absolutely yeah i mean you're you're totally using that to your advantage to get a get a hand up yeah, yeah. pretty brutal that's stuff. some raw bullshit and i i think like the like that's always that i never trusted adults when i was a kid i had real hard i had bad attitude towards adults like i was like snippy and like arrogant towards adults because i just like didn't I didn't buy always that they had, I didn't buy off the bat that they had my best interest at heart. And I think I was right in a lot of circumstances and probably like just a kid with a bad attitude in a lot of other circumstances. But, but generally speaking, my skepticism of adults began like when that murder happened and everybody blamed Angus Young. And in a way, what I wanted to do with 14 was to have like force JD Salinger to go back and be reincarnated as a 14 year old girl who's interested only in literature. Right. And okay. see how how shitty the dream can be for him if he's trapped in somebody else's reality. And then sort of like magic his ass back to his current state and he can confess kind of like a almost like a, a Ebenezer Scrooge kind of thing to to the to the one he's with right now. You listen to the end of the song. I say, little girl, you want to know someone you look up to. Careful what you wish for. You might end up burying me. He's he's saying I can't do this to people anymore. He's saying I have to like like let you off the hook. Like I'm an old piece of shit and I'm just you know, when you get to be thirty years old, I'm gonna get another one who's twenty-two. And you know, that's that's what fourteen is kind of about. It's the JD Salinger like disillusionment song. <laughs> wow, I never I never got that. Uh but I <laughs> I have a whole new appreciation for it. So thanks for thanks This is for such a deep cut right now. Yeah. Like I wish I, I wish I was taking notes. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I got pulled in. I got pulled in by that catchy uh, chorus, but I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, awesome, awesome, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's sort of a deep cut for us, even though it's on the Spotify top five. It's sort of like it's a newer song, and it's kind of like progressive rockish, kind of very uh, sort of indie rock sound. On that record, I was trying to do something sonically like what Willie Nelson did on the Redheaded Stranger, where it kind of sounds like it's like in an old in an old creaky house, you know. Um, and if you're going to bring that up, I figured I'll owe you an explanation, like you know, because that, that song does hit people, and and I I always feel like, you know, it's kind of like the one of our stranger tracks. It's no teenage dirtbag anyway so yeah exactly yeah yeah i'll go burn that <laughs> and uh and uh i'm look I can't, I can't wait for the uh the re-recording uh album to drop i'm i'm really looking forward to hearing these new tracks you want to plug your oh, patreon, patreon too? too yeah patreon.com forward slash weed we're just uh, in the middle of a covers series um okay yeah yeah uh we do like we challenge they the the fans on there they challenge us to the members like tell us what to play so they make a list okay and we have okay. to do it uh yesterday we worked up umbop uh by hansen oh uh, by hansen friday i'm in love by the cure um we did uh i don't feel like dancing by the scissor sisters and uh, uh we did the monkeys uh, i'm a believer and tomorrow, everyone's going to show up, and we have to record that on video like we know what we're doing. So it's a bit of a challenge. It's like you have like a day to learn <laughs> like four songs and like get them on video. So and not if, if somebody shows up and they're playing I'm a Believer by Smash Mouth, are we in trouble? We're in some serious trouble here because we're supposed to be doing monkeys, and this guy over here is doing Smash Mouth. No, we are doing the monkeys version. <laughs> respect. Respect. Yeah, bad respect. And for that matter, 
we're doing the Neil Diamond composition. Oh, okay. Ooh. Wrote the song. Neil wrote the song, so that's that's that. On the boats and on the planes, <laughs> we're coming to America. Uh, I love that song, awesome. man. That song, that song makes me feel cheesy love. That's a that's a great song. <laughs> and on that New York moment, Brendan, thank you so much for being with us. This, this has been a the the time of our yeah, lives. Yeah, this is this is like a ultimate high. I I can't even put it into words thank you so much honestly can you if you could do one thing for me um my buddy dangles he's a huge huge weedus fan so if you could just give a shout out to dangles he w- it would make his night i promise dangles this is brendan from weedus i will always love you <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> thank you brother i appreciate that more than you can know dude it's th- th- thank you so much for having me good luck with the podcast hope you guys kick ass and all that and and stay safe and uh have a great holiday season Thank, Thank you. you. All right, take care, Brennan. All right, bye, guys. All right, bye. Holy shit, dude. Holy shit, guys. Yo. That was some dope shit, man. Yo. We're still recording. What's that? I said, we're still recording. That well, was incredible. Do, do, do you want to close a quick closeout then? Nah. Uh, I, I just kind of want to leave it at that. Okay. That'll be good. We'll see you guys next week. Holy shit, man. Rolling out the courthouse. Friday night. X got the kids, and that's all right. Corner store, a sixer, tequila, and a lime. Gonna kick my feet up. Keys on twine. Podcast with your hosts, Pope Calhoun and the Good Captain.